Take your Bible and find your place, if you will, at the book of Philippians chapter 1. If you're just joining us, we began a series last week of a study through the book of Philippians. We'll be in the book of Philippians probably 12 weeks. But we're going to be picking up today at verse 9 through 11, and we're going to talk about one very specific and very important thing. Philippians chapter 1, I'm reading from the New King James Version. You may be reading from a different translation than mine, but you'll be able to follow along, and the verses will also be on the screens for you to be able to follow along with me. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray together as we begin. Heavenly Father, I do pray today that you will fill our hearts with love, love for one another. Lord, so often in this world, we find ourselves challenged when it comes to, to the matter of loving each other, and we've become so individualistic that we think the only one we really have to love is ourselves. Lord, I pray today that we will hear the words of the Apostle Paul and that we will be challenged to love one another. In your name I pray, amen. I want to begin today with a little unusual way, and that is by quoting the words of a country song. I'm not a big country fan, that's not necessarily my genre, but this particular song was written by a man named Jaron Lowenstein, good Jewish name, wouldn't you say? But he goes by the name Jaron. And in 2009, he released this single, and it became one of the top 15 on the Billboard Hot Country Songs chart. Apparently, what precipitated this song was that he and his girlfriend had a terrible breakup, and it was just a, a miserable thing that he was going through. And so he wrote this song called Pray For You, Pray For You. And, and this is how it goes. I haven't been to church since I don't remember when. Things were going great till they fell apart again. So I listened to the preacher as he told me what to do. He said, you can't go hating others who have, done you, who have done wrong to you. Sometimes we get angry, but we must not condemn. Let the good Lord do his job. You just pray for them. And then this chorus that he repeats several times. I pray your brakes go out running down a hill. I pray a flower pot falls from a windowsill and knocks you in the head like I'd like to. I pray your birthday comes and nobody calls. I pray you're flying high when your engine stalls. I pray all your dreams never come true. Just know whenever, wherever you are, honey, I pray for you. Then <laughs> you wonder why country is not my genre. Surely we can do better than that. Surely we can do better than that. Uh, when God tells us to pray, he informs us the kinds of prayers that we really ought to pray. It's something that you may know, but just to make sure that everyone knows, is that Paul was a man of prayer. And you can tell uh, the maturity of a person's life by, by their prayer life. But Paul was a man of prayer. In every one of his epistles, all of the letters that he wrote, he refers to prayer. Uh, sometimes he's encouraging prayer. Other times he's telling what he's praying about, what he's saying in his prayers, or he's giving us information about how we should pray. 
But in every one of his letters, he talks about the the subject of prayer. And I'm always grateful in the prayers of Paul when he says, this is the way you should pray. And today, that's what we're looking at. In verses 9 to 11, the Apostle Paul, as we continue our study through Philippians, is going to tell us what his first request was. You remember back in verse number 4, verses 3 and 4, he said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all. So what was the request? What was the prayer, at least part of, the prayer or the request that he made on behalf of, on behalf of these Philippians? And the answer to that is, is in verses 9 to 11. So if you're keeping notes today, you want to write five R's because each of those words I'm going to give you begins with the, with the letter R, and then we're going to wrap the truth of these verses around those five words that begin with the letter R. So, so let's just begin where the Apostle Paul begins. You want to know what he's praying for when he prays for the Philippians? You, you want to know what he's asking God to do in the hearts of the Philippians? Well, he tells you. First of all, there is the request. The request. Notice at verse 9. He says, and this I pray. Okay, what is it that you pray for? That your love may abound still more and more. In other words, he says, I'm praying for you to love. I want your love to grow deeper and stronger and fuller and richer. I want your love to grow more and more with every passing day. I think you would agree that uh, one of the highest virtues of the Christian life is the virtue of love. Think about the words of Jesus. Speaking to his disciples just before he would go out to the garden, he would be arrested and he'd be crucified. He said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Please note what he says, that you love one another. On this occasion, he didn't say they'll know you're my disciples by how much you love the world, those that are outside of Christ, those that aren't following Jesus. He said, you'll know, people will know that you're my disciples by how you love each other within the family of God. Or think about what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. He says, faith, hope, and love. Three great virtues. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is what? It's love. He said, the greatest of these is love. Right now, we need faith. Right now, we need hope. But one day, we'll be standing in the presence of Jesus, and faith and hope, as they're exercised today, will no longer be necessary. But you know what will go on? What, what we experience today in this life will go on in the life to come. It will be this love that, that he enjoins upon us, that he encourages us, uh, that he's praying for us that we might have. He says that this love needs to abound. It needs to abound. It means to be extremely rich. It means to grow or to progress or to excel. Uh, it's, it's an important word that, it, that indicates that our hearts ought to be constantly increasing, growing in the realm of love, in this matter of love. He wants us to have more and more love amongst ourselves. Tertullian is a name you might know. It's, uh, he lived late second century, early third century. Uh, he was one of the early church fathers. And he writes about the love that the first century Christians expressed to one another. You might not know this. In the first and second century, the Roman government tried to infiltrate the church. They tried to get in the church. And they would use spies 
to act as Christians, even to the place of being baptized, like Christians are baptized, in order to get on the inside of the church. They wanted to know what goes on in their meetings. Is there something subversive going on within their meetings? And so they would try to get these spies in. And and what happened is these spies would come out and they would talk about how they loved. I mean, how these believers loved one another. And Tertullian, who was an early uh, church father and author, uh, said about the pagan world, when they looked at the Christians, they would say about them, see how they love one another. See how they love one another. In other words, what characterized that first century church and what God wanted Uh, What uh, God wanted to happen in the hearts of these Philippians as Paul is praying for them is that love, that it would grow deeper and richer and fuller, that it would become something that would be more and more in the course of their lives. There's something that's interesting that you want to take note of. He doesn't tell you what is the object of that love. He says, in this I pray that your love may abound. But he doesn't tell you what the object of that love is. The object of that love could be God. Aren't we told the first commandment that we ought to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? That's the first and the greatest commandment. He could be saying that. He could be saying that we ought to love our neighbor. That's the second great commandment. We ought to love our neighbor as as ourselves. But I I believe on this occasion, in this particular text, that that what he's telling us is that we ought to love one another. He's writing to these people. Uh, Philippian believers, and he said, look, when I pray for you, this is what I pray for you. I pray that your love for each other will grow richer and stronger and fuller and deeper, that your love will be something that goes more and more with every passing day. I want you to love each other in that fashion. And and I say that for this reason. Uh, Throughout these first 11 verses, Paul talks about their fellowship in the gospel, their partnership in the gospel. He's talking about them coming together with each other and helping each other. He uses the word all five times. In four of those five, he says you all. That's an important phrase. That's a good southern phrase. Five, four of those five times, he says, you all. He's talking about all of these believers who are partnering together with me in the gospel. If you look at the end of verse 8, just before the verse, verses we began reading, Paul says, I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I love you with, with all of my heart like Jesus loves you. And then he turns right around and he says, and I want you, I'm praying for you to have this kind of love, the kind of love that abounds, that gets richer and deeper and fuller, that's more and more every single day in your life. I believe he's talking about us loving one another for the fact that he says almost the identical thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. Listen to it. Paul writing says, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another. I think what Paul is telling us here is that I'm praying not for you just to love God and love your neighbor. I think Paul is saying here, I'm praying for you that your love will supersede. It'll grow in richness and fullness and grandeur, that your love will abound more and more for one another, that you will love each other. And that's such an important thing for us to remember. Why why, why is it that Paul would say, I want you to love one another, and I'm praying for you to love one another. And the answer is because it's easier to love people you never see than to love people you see every day. Maybe I should say that again. 
It's easier to love people you never see than to love people you see every day. And he's praying for these people who see each other every single day. You can get under one another's skin. You can irritate each other. You can, you can rub one another the wrong way. And he's praying, I want you to love each other with a love that didn't just trickle along. I want you to have a love that grows from a trickle, from a, from a creek into a stream, and a love that grows from a stream into a river. I want this love to increase between the two of you, between all of you, I should say, between all of you in that Philippian congregation. It's easy to love from a distance, but where love needs to be practiced is amongst those people that you see every single day of your life. You'll have to agree that there are people in your lives like there are in mine that just sort of grate on your nerves. Okay, so I'm the only one who has that problem. I, I, I can see that I'm, I'm a little more carnal than you are. But Jesus is the one who said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? If you love those that love you, what reward have you? I, I want you to love one another. I'm praying for your love to move from a trickle into a stream, into a river of love that grows more and more all the time amongst yourselves uh, to one another amongst yourselves. I want this love to grow, not just those that are easy to love, those that are hard to love. Not just love those from a distance that you see every once in a while, but love those that are with you every single day and sometimes just irritate the fire out of you. I want you to love those people. And I think you would agree, when a church loves one another, when the people love each other, people around sit up and take notice. They pay attention. They say, wow, those people really love each other. Those people really demonstrate a growing, deepening, widening love all the time for each other. And they sit up and they take notice. And it's important as you think about this love that he uses the word agape, the strongest kind of word for love. It's the very word that God uses when he's talking about him loving us. And when you see that word, it, it refers to a love that desires to give oneself to serve the needs of another. A love that desires to give oneself to serve the needs of another. Isn't that what Jesus came to do? He came to serve. He came to give his life. And the apostle Paul says, I'm praying for your love that it will abound more and more, that it gets from a, from a trickle to a stream to a river, that it just keeps on increasing. And then he adds as, as that qualification, more and more and more. I want the love to grow deeper and deeper and deeper. And not just people from a distance, the people that are right there in your midst. I want them to experience and to feel that love. Because the world sits up and takes notice when there's that kind of love expressed between believers. D.L. Moody was the Billy Sunday of his generation. Billy Sunday wrote, a man may be a very good doctor and yet have no love for his patients. He may be a clever and successful lawyer and yet have no love for his clients. A merchant may prosper greatly in business without caring at all for his customers a man may be able to explain the wonderful mysteries of science or theology without any love, but no man can be a true worker of God without love. 
No man can be a true worker of God without love. And the greatest demonstration of the love is that I'm talking about is Romans chapter five, verse eight. That God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You say, preacher, I will never have that kind of love. Really? The kind of love I'm talking about that he's praying for in this particular passage of scripture that is shared amongst the body of Christ, amongst the family of God, is a love that you don't work up within yourself. It is a love that God produces deep within you. It is a love that God works within your heart. Listen to how he says it. Romans chapter five, verse five. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Hear what he says? You say, I can't love this way. Well, first of all, Paul wouldn't be praying for them to love this way if it wasn't possible for them to love this way. And all of us can love this way because we're not talking about the love that originates with us. We're talking about a love that was poured out into us that indwells us in the presence of the Holy Spirit, that enables us to love even the most irritating amongst us. This is modern-day American consumerism, consumer Christianity. I, I go to that church, but they've got that one or two or five or ten irritating people. So I'll just find me a different place to go. Have you ever thought that God might have those people in your life to teach you how to love even the most difficult people to love? Matter of fact, you might be able to say that about your husband or your wife. (laughs) That God intended to use those people in your life to teach you about the most important kind of love. It's not just love that is reciprocated. Sometimes it's love that is given that isn't reciprocated, but you just serve one another and you care for one another and you love one another. And the Apostle Paul said, that's the kind of love I'm praying for you Philippians to have, and by way, of, by way of the Philippians, all of us to have. That all of us would love in this fashion, that your love may abound still more and more. In other words, nobody around us should ever feel love starved. That They might feel love saturated, or they might feel love soaked, but they should never feel love starved. Let me ask you, are you loving that way? Are you letting God work that kind of love in you? Are you holding on to something against somebody else in the body of Christ? Are you at odds with your fellow brothers and sisters in the family of God? Then you need to pray with the Apostle Paul, Lord, I want this love, this serving, selfless, sacrificial love. I want this love to grow in my heart and I want it to abound. I don't want it to just be a trickle. I don't want it to just be a stream. I want it to be a river flowing more and more every single day that I live. I want this kind of love to be able to show others. Do you think God can do that in your life? Absolutely he can. He poured out his love into your heart. And he can, if you will allow him, produce that love in you and through you that you can give to others. And so Paul begins with the request. And I should say from this point forward, everything else, everything else supports the request. The request is the main thing. Here's my request. I want you to abound in love. I want you to abound in love still more and more. That's the request. And everything else that follows supports that request. 
So we move from the request, secondly, to the realm. Where is this love supposed to take place? Well, notice, if you will, again, what it says, verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more. Circle the next word, in. Here's the realm, in knowledge and all discernment. I want, your, I want this love that I'm praying for you to have that's going to grow deeper and fuller and richer in your life, that's going to flow out of your life. I want it to be in knowledge and in all discernment. In knowledge and in discernment. You recognize that water, we're talking about a trickle and then a stream and then a river. You understand that water that gets out of its banks is what? It's dangerous. It's deadly. It's destructive. It can be devastating, right? They call it a flood. You know what a river needs? You know what a stream needs? You know what a creek needs? It needs banks. It needs banks that guide the water where it needs to go. And that's what he's talking about here. This river of love that I want to pour out of you, it's got two banks. On the one bank, it's the bank of knowledge. The word knowledge means transcendent and moral knowledge. It literally refers to a mature knowledge, a knowledge that comes out of experience. Let me see if I can contrast it for you. When you're a new believer, you know some things, but you don't have enough experience to know some of the deeper things of God, right? And so you're growing and you're developing and you're maturing in your faith until you come by experience to a place of deeper understanding, of, of, of a deeper application of the word of God. That's what he's talking about when he talks about knowledge. He's talking about knowledge that's gained by experience, a knowledge that comes over a course of maturity. And this knowledge is to be a knowledge in God's word and in God's ways and in God's will. A knowledge in God's word and in God's ways and in God's will. And so the longer you live with the Lord, the longer you live for the Lord, the greater your experiences are with him, the more you know his word, the more you know his way, the more you know his will. And this bank that's going to help guide this love where it needs to go is going to be bounded with truth. Truth. This love is guided by right moral principles that come from God's word. In other words, love is not tolerant and accepting of everything. And that's gonna blow a lot of people away. That love is not tolerant or accepting of all things. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse six says, love rejoices in the, you know, truth. Love doesn't rejoice in iniquity. It says, love rejoices in the truth. Unfortunately, we live in a day when love means something altogether different than what God means here when he says, the Apostle Paul is praying for God to allow these people to abound still more and more in this love. Actually, today, people talking about love means, it means accepting anything and affirming everything. That's what love is in our day and age accepting anything and affirming everything. I mean, if you dare object, what do people say? Oh, you don't really love me. You don't really love me. Because you don't accept anything and affirm everything. 
Because there's something that bounds your love that keeps you guided so that that love gets poured out in the right way. And that's what he's saying. The fact of the matter is that real love must be tied to truth for it to be authentic Christian love. For it to be authentic Christian love. And so you got this one boundary. You got this one bank of love. On the other side of this river of love is to be discernment. You got knowledge, knowledge of his word, knowledge of the truth, knowledge of his, uh, of his ways and of his will. On the other bank, guiding this ever-growing love is this matter of discernment. This is the only time the Greek word is used in the New Testament, right here. But in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's found 22 times. And it's found 22 times in the book of Proverbs. And the word means moral insight that guides the actions and the words. Moral insight that guides the actions and words. In other words, while knowledge is an understanding of God, his will, his word, his ways, a growing in experience, a maturing in experience, on the other side, there's discernment, which is the ability to apply that truth to life. It's the ability to make the right application of knowledge to life. You know, a lot of people know things, but they have no discernment to be able to apply what they know. Have you met somebody like that? <laughs> Nobody's met anybody like that. They know a lot of things, but they have absolutely no sense in understanding and discerning how to apply what they know. And yet, that's what is to be the banks of this river of love that he's praying will flow out of the hearts and the lives of, of these believers. There was a mother who went to the grocery store and she had her very young daughter riding in the cart. And the little girl just kept misbehaving. She was crying and she was screaming sometimes. She was getting louder and louder. And the mother could be heard saying as she was going up and down the aisles, calm down, Ellen. We're almost through, Ellen. We're going to be home soon, Ellen. And she just kept saying it over and over as she got her groceries. Finally, she came to the checkout, and the lady at the register said to her, I just want to commend you on how you've handled little Ellen. And the mother said, I'm Ellen. But you know what she was doing in those moments? <laughs> she was using knowledge and discernment. She thought about some ways of disciplining her child right there in the middle of the grocery store. But she had knowledge and she had discernment. She knew what needed to be done. She knew when the right time was to do it and how to go about doing it. But right there at that moment wasn't the time and wasn't the way. And yet, unfortunately, too many of us lack that kind of discernment. You see, there's this request. You see it? I pray that your love may abound still more and more. And what is the realm? In knowledge and all discernment. These are the banks of this river of love that God wants to pour out of us. It's not a, about affirming anything and accepting everything. This is about knowing God's word, his will, and his way, and having discernment to know how to apply it in given situations. But then we move to the reason. We move from the request, the realm, to the reason. Verse 10, that, 
you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. You see those two words, that? Really, it's one word used twice. You see, the, you see that word? It means so that. It means in order that. This is the result. This is the reason, I should say, why you want this kind of love bounded by knowledge and discernment. That, so that, in order that, you may approve the things that are excellent. To approve means to test in order to approve. It's the ability to evaluate people and situations correctly. And I want you to notice, he's not talking about making good decisions on the basis of what is bad and what is good. He's helping you here to understand that these are decisions that are made on the basis of what is good and what is excellent. You can choose something that is good, maybe neutral, or you can choose something that is excellent. And he says, I want you to be able to love in such a way, bounded by knowledge and discernment, that you will be able to test and approve and to be able to make good decisions and good choices that aren't just about good and bad, good and evil, but are about good and what is great, what is the absolute best. This word for approve means that it was used to test gold, to find out whether it was pure. It was used of testing money to see whether or not it was counterfeit or not. It was used to test oxen to determine whether they were useful for the task. In other words, this is the ability. Are you with me? This is the ability to prioritize things that really matter and that have real value. Let me say it again. This is the ability. When he says in verse 10 that you may approve the things that are excellent. This is the ability to prioritize things that really matter and that have real value. Mm. Unfortunately, we too often don't demonstrate that kind of testing. We don't use our minds to think things through. Somebody has said, the majority of believers don't test anything. They live by their moods and not their minds. People don't want to think, but be amused. Amused, ah, meaning no thinking. People live by their moods, not their minds. They don't stop to think about it. Now, now look, when you're a teenager, you, you do some dumb things, don't you? Okay, so I was the only teenager who did dumb things. <laughs> when, when you're a teenager, you do some dumb things. I, I was watching the news this week, and there's, there's a new one of these tricks that they're doing. You know, when they put Tide Pods in their mouth and all these kind of crazy things. There's a new thing going around, and they were showing it on the news. You get three kids lined up shoulder to shoulder, and they're all going to jump, supposedly. But when the middle one jumps, the other two don't, and they kick his feet out from under him, and then he falls backward. And they said there's people fracturing their skulls because they can't catch themselves falling backwards. Hopefully you're not, you don't have kids that are doing that kind of dumb stuff because that's not just dumb, that's dangerous. 
But when you're a kid, you do some dumb stuff. But you know, as you grow older, as you mature in your faith, as you get more knowledge and your discernment grows, you ought to be able to look at things and be able to prioritize what are the most important things in life. You ought to be able to determine what really matters and what's really valuable. And sometimes you have to say no to something that's good, but not the best. Because the love that you have flowing in you and flowing through you, bounded by knowledge and discernment, enables you to test, to have the ability to prioritize what matters, what really matters, and what's of real value. And may I just tell you that the ability to distinguish the best from the good is a mark of maturity. Think think about what I'm saying. Remember Jesus was coming to the house of Mary and Martha. Remember it? And they were trying to get ready. They wanted to have everything in place when Jesus got there. You know, you want to, you want to, the Son of God's coming. You want to make sure everything's you know, taken care of. Jesus arrives. Guess what Martha does? Martha just keeps on banging the pans and the pots. Those weren't, didn't exist, but you know what I'm saying. Just keeps on banging the pans and the pots in, in, the, in the kitchen, trying to get the meal ready, trying to make sure the meal's ready. And, and if you've ever had brothers or sisters, you know what I'm talking about. Hey, mother, send her in here. I shouldn't have to do this by myself. Do your kids ever do that? And Martha said, Jesus, tell Mary to get in here. I need some help. Where was Mary? Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ. And how did Jesus answer Martha? Mary has chosen the good thing. Mary has chosen the best thing thing. That's what we're talking about here. Talk about a reason. Look, when we make the request for love to grow in our hearts, bounded by knowledge and discernment, it's so that we can look at situations and we can look at people and we can make good decisions, value the right things so that we can do not just distinguish between what is bad and what is good, but between what is good and what is best in a given situation. But then you notice it goes on, that you may approve the things that are excellent. Here's another purpose statement, that, so that, in order that, you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. You may be sincere. It means without hidden motives. It means without hypocrisy. It means to be pure. Literally, the word means to be judged by the Son. You've done this, haven't you? At least I've done this. Probably you've done this. I drop something on my shirt and, you know, I tell Mary about it and she uses a stain stick and she puts it in the washing machine and the next day you get out to wear it, the next time you're going to wear it, you pull it out, you put it on, but in the light of the house, you don't even see it. But then you walk outside into this blazing sunlight and you still see the faint remembrance of that spot on that shirt. Uh, they, they would take uh, pottery, for instance, and to make sure that it was genuine, make sure that it was uh, of the quality they were telling them it was uh, that kind of quality, they would hold it up to the sun to see if there were any cracks in it, if you could see through it. In other words, he says, I want you to have this kind of love bounded by knowledge and discernment so that you can make good choices about things, things between what are good and what is best. Because then your life will be a life of sincerity. It'll be without hypocrisy. And we want to live our lives without hypocrisy, don't we? 
We don't want to say to somebody, I love you, and then turn around and gossip about them the next day. Just to show you a little bit of this insincerity, it's a little note that was written. It said, Dearest Jimmy, no words could ever express the great unhappiness I've felt since breaking our engagement. Please say you'll take me back. No one could ever take your place in my heart, so please forgive me. I love you, I love you, I love you. Yours forever, Marie. P.S. And congratulations on winning the state lottery. <laughs> a little bit of an insincere motive, wouldn't you say? The Apostle Paul prays, he says, I want you to be filled with a love bounded by knowledge and discernment that helps you to make good choices so that you can be a sincere not an insincere, not a disingenuous believer, but somebody who is sincere as that love fills your heart. And then he says, without offense. Some of your translations may use a different word, but it means without offense, without causing someone to stumble along the way. There's an old saying that we used to use a lot. Others may, I cannot. Others may, I cannot. There are things in life that I might be able to do, but I don't do them. I might have the liberty and the freedom to do them, but I don't do them. And you know why? Because I don't want to cause somebody else to stumble. I don't want somebody else to fall because of, the, because of following my example. I might have liberty and freedom to do it, but for them it would be something that would be bad and dangerous and destructive. Some translations use the word blameless. But he's talking about putting something that would cause somebody else to stumble. I mean, there, there are two good tests to exercise whenever you're making choices. Right there. Will I be ashamed if Jesus should return? I mean, after all, he's talking about doing this till the day of Christ. See at the end of verse 10? He's, been, he's talked about the day of Christ earlier in the verses just before it. Now he talks about the day of Christ again. Will I be ashamed if Jesus should return? And here's the second question. Will it make others stumble? I mean, love would dictate that I wouldn't do something that I'd be ashamed of if Jesus came and found me doing it. And love dictates that I wouldn't do something, even if I had the liberty or the right to do it, I wouldn't do it if it caused somebody else to stumble along the way. And so we have the request, we have the realm in which this request takes place, we have the reason, but then we have the result. When this love is filling us more and more and abounding in our lives, bounded by knowledge and discernment so that we can test and make good choices, that our lives would be genuine and sincere, not leaving stumbling blocks, but stepping stones for other people. The end result of living that kind of life is being filled. Verse 11, this is, this is the result. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness. I'd have you to notice two things about the fruits of righteousness. First of all, he says to be filled with the fruits of righteousness, filled. No half measures here. There are no half measures. I don't get Christians that live just enough to be able to salve their conscience, but they're not giving their best to Jesus Christ. I don't get it. None of us should get it. L listen to what Titus chapter two, verse 14 says, who gave himself for us, 
That's the death of Jesus. He died for us. That he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. Now listen, zealous, zealous for good works. I can find people zealous about lots of things. But you'll never have children that are zealous about Jesus if you're not zealous about Jesus. You'll never have, you'll never have a family that's zealous about good works if you're not zealous about good works. We'll never have a church that's zealous about good works if we aren't zealous about those works. You see, when we love in the fashion that he's talking about here, bounded by knowledge and discernment, we make good choices. We live sincere, genuine lives. We don't leave stumbling blocks, but we place stepping stones before others. And the result of that is our lives are filled up to overflowing, no half measures, filled up to overflowing with these kinds of good works, these kinds of good deeds, the many right things, the many good things, the many godly things that we're doing in and for and through love for other people. The second thing I'd have you to notice about that phrase, we're to be filled with the fruits of righteousness. We're not supposed to be giving half measures, no partial filling. But I'd say secondly, you want to notice that fruit is the outgrowth of, your, of the inner life of Christ within you. What does he say here? Being filled with the fruits of righteousness. And where, do that, where does that come from? Which are by Jesus Christ. You get it? I mean, this love is going to have to come from Jesus. This discernment, this knowledge from Jesus. The ability to make these kind of choices comes from Jesus. Not being an offense and being sincere comes from Jesus. So that your life is filled with these kinds of good works and these godly things that are done in and for and through love. And all of that's made possible by Jesus because this is about abiding in Christ. It's about abiding in Christ. I, I know you know this, but let me just remind you. You go outside right now and you pick up all the, the branches that have fallen out of your trees and off your trees. Here's something I can guarantee you. They aren't going to produce any fruit this year. And I'm not even a farmer, and I know that. <laughs> they're not going to produce any fruit this year. You know why? Because they're disconnected from the life of the tree. In other words, this fruit of righteousness that he says is the result of all of these things that have preceded it is what God, what Christ works in us as we abide in him. As we stay connected to the branch, as we stay connected to the tree, his life flows in us and his life flows through us. And we have this righteousness. We have these fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ. And finally, I'd have you to look at the rejoicing. What is the request? Do you know what the request is? That they'd be filled with love, abounding still more and more. What's the realm? With the boundaries of knowledge and discernment guiding this love where it needs to go. And why do you want to do that? Because you want to choose good. You want to choose the very best things in life. You want to be genuine and sincere. You want to be without offense. You want to be a stumbling block to others. And what's the result when you live that way? Jesus fills you up. He produces within you these fruits of righteousness when you're living that way. But then there's the rejoicing. 
the very last phrase of verse 11, to the glory and praise of God. Isn't that great? Are you all still with me? To the glory and praise of God. Let me ask you a question. Um, Who is Paul praying to when he prays this prayer for the Philippians? He's praying to God, right? And who does he say will receive the glory and the praise at the end? It'll be God who receives the glory in the end. You know, in essence, what he's doing, he's asking God to glorify himself and to use us as his instruments to make that happen. Isn't that cool? Are y'all with me? Isn't that cool? We get to be instruments in his hand that God produces in us and through us this kind of love that ultimately brings glory and honor right back to him. Isn't that the way we're supposed to be living? My goodness. We're not supposed to be living for ourselves. We're supposed to be living for him. We're supposed to be living so that when we stand before him one day, we take any crowns, rewards that we receive, and what do we do with them? We cast them at his feet, for he alone is worthy. John chapter 15, verse 8 says, By this is my fa- by this my father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. Or Jesus speaking in the in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5 of Matthew, says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, that they may see your good works, these fruits of righteousness, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Not only will you glorify God, others seeing the works that you do glorify God. What did Tertullian tell us? The pagans looked and they said, Look at how those people love each other. Look at the love that they show for one another and the care and the compassion that they demonstrate to one another. Oh, friends, that's the kind of love God wants to produce in us and God wants to produce through us. Just to show you how this love works, there's a a little story that comes from our daily bread. Some of you use that. We we give them away free. Um, It's a devotional book to supplement what you may be doing in your own devotion. But in the Daily Bread on one of the editions, it was talking about World War II and something that happened during World War II. Hitler commanded all the religious groups to unite, and the purpose of that was so that he could control them. Well, there was one group of Christians called the Brethren Assemblies. Half of them complied, and about half of them refused. Those that complied had a much easier time. Those that refused found themselves with harsh persecution. In fact, most of them had at least one family member that died in a concentration camp. When the war was over, these two, these two sides of this brethren assemblies were angry with one another. They were bitter toward one another. And finally, they decided that the situation had to be healed. So the leaders got together at a quiet retreat. And for several days, they just spent time searching God's word and praying and examining their own hearts in the light of Christ's command. And then they came together to talk. Francis Schaeffer is the one who relates what comes next. Francis Schaeffer may not be a familiar name to you. He lived in the 20th century, this past century. He was a theologian, a philosopher. Francis Schaeffer asked his friend who had, who had witnessed this, he said, what did, you, what did you do then? And the man said, 
we were just one. We were just one. He said, as they confessed their hostilities and bitterness to God and yielded to his control, that the Holy Spirit created a spirit of unity among them and love filled their hearts and dissolved their hatred. And then this devotional says, when love prevails among believers, it presents to the world an indisputable mark of a true follower of Jesus Christ. An indisputable mark of a true follower of Jesus. Can I just tell you, that's what I pray for myself. That's what I pray for you. I pray that your love may abound still more and more, bounded by knowledge and discernment so that your love gets guided and directed properly. That you may approve the things that are excellent that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled, the result, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, these good works and godly works, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God.